Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley, certified prosthetist, 3D printing enthusiast, and owner of Ascent Fabrication. Fabrication Friday is an all-around fun time where I talk about 3D printing applications, conduct interviews with industry leaders, and much more. Come join us every Friday for an informational discussion around the evolution of the additive manufacturing field and how we utilize various digital workflows and 3D printing methods in our daily work at Ascent Fabrication. How's it going, everyone? Thank you and welcome back to the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley. We're going to be trying something out a little bit different today. Um, if For those of you who are watching the video, uh, I do have up on the screen here a nice blue backdrop. Uh, we're going to be showing some new uh, pictures and video of some of the prints that we're doing, um, some live video of the actual print happening, as well as some finished uh, pictures of the actual products themselves, just so that we can start talking about these different devices, talking about the little nuances of how we're printing them, and then give a little bit more of a personal experience into some of the people that we're talking with and showing off some of these devices. Um, so today I wanted to address some uh, kind of housekeeping things here. We're going to introduce this week uh, the print of the week. So every week we're going to come up with a highlight a new print that we are very excited about um, for whatever particular reason. Maybe that print came out really nicely, or we just want to highlight a specific feature of a certain print. So this print of the week, uh, this week uh, is a pair of bilateral prosthetic protective covers. So the protective covers uh, over here are uh, printed in TPU, thermoplastic polyurethane, um, this is a TPU that we have printed uh, quite a bit with over the past couple years. Uh, we have tried a few different brands of TPU, um, and this particular brand has been uh, very consistent with its quality in terms of diameter of the material at 175 filament um, and the overall uh, impressive finish that the material gives off. So. It gives off kind of a shiny black. Um, we also use uh, a couple different uh, colors that are more skin tone like. Uh, we could do red, black, blue, green, light skin tone, medium skin tone, dark skin tone. Um, for some of the other covers, we are using a different style TPU from Color Fab Vario Shore. Um, it gives it a little bit more of a matte finish, um, and we have those nice skin tone colors. Uh, but with this particular black TPU, we've just had really nice results. With this pair of bilateral covers, this was for a, a veteran um, who wanted a little bit of personalization into the part. So uh, we took a his purple heart that he was awarded. Congratulations to him. Thank you very much for your service. Um, his purple heart, I was able to take a picture of the heart. Uh, the whole metal itself, and then you bring that picture into Autodesk Fusion 360, and then you can trace out the outline of what you would want to emboss onto a certain part. So we took that picture, outlined the different features that we wanted to see it, scaled it appropriately so that we were able to 
put it onto the cover in a way that it would um, be sized appropriately for that shape. And then um, once we had that shape correct, we did an extrusion um, either in toward the part uh, and embossed it uh, for different features on the actual uh, emblem itself or extruded outwards, depending on that look that you wanna get. And knowing that we're just designing that actual feature, we then are bringing it into Mesh Mixer where we actually design the entire cover itself. So all of the organic modeling is done within Mesh Mixer. Typically we take a scan of the full prosthesis with comb, uh, C-O-M-B, it's uh, it's an iPhone app that was specifically uh, designed and um, influenced some algorithms in the background to make this really well suited for prosthetic and orthotic applications. Very accurate down to one to two millimeters of accuracy. That's perfect accuracy for what we need um, in most cases. So I scanned the uh, patient's prostheses with comb. Um, and then we actually had a templated um, leg in order to take the shape of a leg and modify some circumferences based off of what the patient was looking for since he was bilateral. So once we did that, you mirror that image um, over to both sides. So you have mirror images of one another, and then you end up doing some Boolean operations and shelling operations within Mesh Mixer to come up with this cover. It's a fairly involved process that sometimes takes us, um, you know, one to three hours, depending on the intricacy of the design. Um, but we're starting to really nail down that workflow and it's been getting a little bit better um, as we continue to iterate on that. So, you know, both of these covers, the organic shapes were designed within Mesh Mixer completely uh, and based off of scan data. And then the actual embossment, the purple heart, as well as the lettering underneath it there, the Vietnam 70, um, that was all designed in Fusion and then exported as an STL file into Mesh Mixer. You're then doing more Boolean operations to manipulate those two objects into getting a perfect you know, curvature embossment at that specific location. And that's really the tricky part. Um, if you want to do some embossments on some of your designs, you know, reach out to us at Ascent Fab to learn how to do that. Um, we will teach you a lot of these techniques. Um, some techniques are going to be a little bit more time consuming than others. So, you know, you might want to uh, leave some of the design up to us if you don't have that time in your day as a busy clinician or otherwise um, to be able to do some of these designs that require, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to maybe three hours sometimes to get this design right. We can do that design for you, send you a G code and off, off you go. Um, if you have a printer that is compatible with some of our print settings and materials. So we'll uh, come in and uh, go for a training for two days with you on site with your, your printers. Um, and right now during the month of July, we're actually running a promotion that you will receive a free artillery sidewinder uh, with the purchase of an in-house training. So if that sounds enticing to you guys, um, you know, reach out to us today before the end of July here to learn more about that special. Uh, the artillery sidewinder is a wonderful uh, desktop out of the box printer um, for the size and um, you know features that we're looking for. 
it's perfect. 300 by 300 by 400 millimeters of build volume, perfectly big enough to print out, I would say 75% of the devices that we're looking to print. Now there's some, you know, different considerations based off of what you'd actually want to print with those uh, types of printers, but they can be a very useful tool. We have two of those printers ourselves and they're running almost every single day on various different devices. Um, namely flexible inner sockets with TPU and ColorFab Shore, as well as um, uh, prosthetic covers, uh, namely, and SMOs, lower extremity orthotics. We can get most of those on the plate. Um, solid ankle AFOs are going to be a little bit more tricky, but sometimes doable, especially in pediatrics. Uh, inner boots, uh, foot orthotics, polypropylene, or VarioShore, uh, TPU are, are great as well. Great applications for that. So, you know, with all that in mind, um, you know, again, reach out to us if you're interested in an in-house training and um, for learning more about how to do some of this design work for covers like this. So with these covers, just wanted to go over a couple other little stats on them. The, the outer shape um, is just about two and a half millimeters thick. Um, it has a posterior slit and some magnetic closures, which are really, really nice and useful. Uh, make it easy, you know, snap on, snap off, can be removable for the patient. So, you know, that's extremely useful for them to be able to either use it when they want to or not. Um, and then inside, there's actually a shorter inner cover that directly mates on the inside of it with some of the prosthetic componentry. So about a kind of two and a half inch to three inch section, um, that would be the exact shape from the uh, distal end of the socket down below the first tube clamp um, and onto the pylon. So that's kind of the, the overall height of what that uh, inner portion of the cover would entail. Um, the inner portion of the cover is printed on the Filament Innovations um, Icarus or Kratos uh, 3D printer could be printed on other printers as well, um, but I like using the the Filament Innovations printer with the two and a half millimeter nozzle for that case because it prints in an hour and a half. Um, so you know we could you know print out a full cover uh, in a very similar sense in about two to three hours. We've done that before as well, um, so that's really enticing with the Filament Innovations printers. Um, and that inner cover is about 185 grams. So just looking at those material costs, you know, 185 grams, extremely light. The outer cover uh, is only 360 grams. So, you know, you really all in at uh, 535 grams, you know, uh, 545 grams, really, really uh, lightweight cover. Uh, it's not going to add a lot of bulk or anything like that because we actually design it specifically to the patient's contralateral limb. Uh, or we can take one of our library shapes of limbs uh, that we know looks nice and just modify those circumferences in order to get that um, result that we're looking for. So that is our print of the week, bilateral TPU covers. Um, so now getting on into uh, today's Fabrication Friday, I really wanted to uh, kind of just further introduce myself, my own pathway into the 3D printing industry in general. Um, it's been quite the unique one, specifically because I'm a certified prosthetist and board eligible orthotist. Um, you know, that pathway, because of prosthetics, has led me into this 3D printing space simply because 
Um, there are so many applications in our field for 3D printing, whether we're doing something custom for someone or uh, actually starting to print out uh, componentry too. You know, this could be start started to be used for components. Um, right now we have a suction cushion design with a four hole pattern where you can just drop it in like a lock and it's a suction, you know, distal end. Uh, we also have a lanyard lock that is the, the very similar uh, design with the four hole pattern with barrel nuts that drops into the bottom of a socket. So whether it is patient end use custom devices or um, those four hole, you know, components, something like that. Those are all very now doable within, um, you know, the prosthetic line of componentry. So getting back to my kind of starting point in 3D printing, back in 2015, um, I was a senior at Siena College in Albany, New York here, Loudonville, really. And, um, you know, it's kind of on a path where um, I didn't quite know, like any young, uh, you know, almost graduating college student, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to get into once I got into the real world. Um, you know, that uh, wasn't really spelled out for me. I was a physics major, so uh, I was looking to get into some kind of engineering, um, possibly. And, you know, with that, most of my classes at that time were actually oriented towards astrophysics. Um, astrophysics kind of went over my head and uh, in one ear out the other. Um, so I, I didn't do so well in astrophysics, but I really got a grasp on more of the, the physical aspects of physics. So, you know, that was kind of a, an interesting and trying time for me as a senior in my undergrad. Um, and, you know, looking towards what I had to accomplish for that year, um, speaking with one of my mentors, Alan Weatherwax, Dr. Alan Weatherwax, um, you know, wonderful person and, and wonderful mentor for me at that time. Um, he was very instrumental in helping guide me into actually 3D printing. He said, you know, Joe, there's this 3D printer thing downstairs in one of the labs, and it's been there for a few months and nobody's touched it. You know, no one really knows what it is or how to use it. So why don't you try to figure it out? And um, so, you know, again, not ever knowing before that what a 3D printer was um, kind of enticed me. You know, I'm trying to get into something new and exciting. I knew I was sort of interested in prosthetics um, from from a previous experience in high school. Get into that in a minute. Um, But really just wanted to, you know, find out more about prosthetics because I saw some things, um, you know, from Enable actually that was happening in 2015, the Enable uh, global, you know, Google uh, community was starting to get organized by John Schull out of RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology here in New York. And I was just intrigued, you know, wanted to see what these 3D printed prosthetic hands were all about, uh, you know, see what that entailed. How do you 3D print a hand? Um, who is that good for? You know, I never had met someone with a partial hand um, you know, limb difference from, from birth. So I really didn't know what I was getting myself into, but it sounded cool, interesting. So I needed to do like a very involved, um, year long project. And so I, I looked at the printer. It was an Ultimaker, um, Ultimaker two, I believe at the time, um, you know, maybe probably the third or fourth rendition that Ultimaker had put out, 
um, you know, very small cubic build volume, um, no more than maybe eight inches tall. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting to me just to see from a kind of, you know, chemistry standpoint, what was happening with the material, you know, what is PLA? I had never heard of PLA before, um, you know, learn about that material and it's uh, glass transition temperature and melting point. And I tried to get way, way far into the physics aspect of that. Um, and then it was, you know, we're trying to cool it down and solidify it. And how do we do that appropriately for a part that's going to be, uh, you know, needs to be strong? and have some structural integrity. Um, so I, it was a trial by fire, you know, fly by the seat of your pants kind of learning technique for me, because again, no one else at Siena college at the time really had any experience with this. So I was learning, uh, completely on my own, um, was looking around probably at YouTube videos to try to see, you know, what was going to be doable and, um, you know, looking to, um, anything and every, uh, resource out on the internet for what was 3D printing at the time back in 2015. Um, at that time, there was a project called InMove, I-N-M-O-O-V. Um, at that time, it was a fully articulating robot from the torso up. And so it had robotic arms, it had a, a head that swiveled. Um, and so I tried to take the arm and just from the, the forearm down, there were servo motors in the forearm itself uh, that would articulate all the fingers. And then um, I actually hooked it up to an Arduino board and was able to write simple code to be able to articulate all the fingers. Um, so that was kind of the, and I, I should mention too, I don't know if I said that earlier, but it was all 3D printed. So all the other components aside from the electrical components was completely 3D printed, um, again, out of black PLA uh, at the time. So very, very simple uh, types of printing going on there too. Um, but again, not really knowing what PLA was even supposed to look like, what were the print settings. You know, I was using Ultimaker's Cura back at that time and, um, you know, learning quite a bit about just how the 3D printer functioned. You know, I didn't really understand the extrusion, um, you know, flow rates and percentages and speeds that I should be at. Um, so at one point, you know, I think a nozzle got clogged or something. I was always having problems with nozzle clogging. Um, I'm not too sure that it was really the nozzle clogging that was really the problem back then, but that's what it seemed like the problem was. So what did I do? I took apart <laughs> almost the entire printer and, and tried to figure out the root cause of the problem. And um, I, by doing so, again, I learned a, a lot about how the printer functioned, where all the parts and components were supposed to go. And, um, you know, really got my hands dirty with, with figuring out just on a very uh, general level um, what 3D printing was back then. So, you know, what originally got me interested in prosthetics was, I, so I'm a runner by trade, uh, athletically in high school, I was a track and cross country runner um, here in Saratoga Springs, New York. We had a really, really good high school team. Um, our coaches, uh, the Cranics, um, husband and wife duo, uh, you know, definitely had their way of coaching um, that was really beneficial towards 
getting you as far as you could go in high school. And, um, you know, I learned a lot underneath them and um, got to do a lot of uh, very, very cool things and, and met some cool people and traveled to some cool places. So when I was a sophomore in high school um, during the summer, we would go on a training trip out to Chula Vista, California, to the Olympic Training Center out there. So very fortunate to be able to train there. Um, that's where um, a lot of the Olympic athletes in in those summer sports end up doing that training, uh, particularly the, um, the the track athletes. Rowing, I know, goes on uh, goes on there as well, and some motocross and soccer and some of the other you know, spring and summer sports. So, you know, we had the very fortunate opportunity to be able to uh, run on the track there. And I was finishing up a workout one day around the track. And all of a sudden I hear this pitter patter come behind me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm like just jogging at that point and, uh, you know, heard this pitter patter come up and I'm like, you know, turning around, like, what is that? And all of a sudden I see this bilateral below the knee Paralympian sprinting by me at full speed. I mean, that was to me at that time, that was the coolest thing ever. I'd, I had never, you know, met anyone like that, never saw anyone running like that too on these, these curved, you know, black looking J shaped feet. Uh, now we know as prosthetic running blades Um you know, and so that was just a really cool aha moment for me to, you know, back in high school that um, I knew that I wanted to work with people like that with limb differences that, you know, were super athletic and really interested in staying healthy and active. Um, I've always gravitated towards working with those types of patients uh, for the most part, you know, have a lot of fun. Um, I've, I've made some running prostheses, you know, in my clinical tenure so far and just really enjoy that aspect of working with patients. So, you know, that kind of got me interested in prosthetics and uh, through this project with Sienna, that really kind of started to open up some doors for me, you know, start to get more interested in prosthetics. I was getting very deeply ingrained within the Enable community. Um, I actually started uh, a, a movement within the Enable group to have these college chapters. So, we would meet uh, like once monthly with other colleges around the country um, that wanted to have these, you know, student clubs, basically, that were, um, you know, the oversight was this enable uh, group. And, um, you know, learned a lot by uh, getting involved with enable, saw the good things and the bad things that were happening mainly on the clinical side of things. You know, we wanted to stay a lot more clinically oriented than uh, some individuals were within the group. Um, and that's how I got in touch originally with uh, Jeff Aaronstone, um, CPO and uh, a, a wonderful mentor of mine throughout uh, my prosthetic career, uh, as well as in 3D printing. You know, Jeff was also 3D printing uh, before uh, 2015 in his practice, Mountain Orthotics Prosthetic Services in upstate New York here. And with his uh, nonprofit operation Namaste, so Jeff was very instrumental in uh, kind of helping me get into more of a clinical mindset as well. At that time, um, from Siena College, I went off to Merrimack College, where I got a master's in exercise and sports science. 
Um, I was trying to get into Northwestern's master's in prosthetics, orthotics degree. Um, couldn't quite get there because of some grades uh, from my astrophysics background that weren't quite cutting it. So, you know, if I have any, uh, you know, just any general, you know, tips to give anybody, if you're, if you're struggling in undergrad, it's not the end of the world, you'll figure it out in your master's program and you'll get there. Um, so with the help of, again, my mentor, uh, Dr. Alan Weatherwax from Siena, uh, went into this program at Merrimack College, continued on the Enable um, College chapters, and we ended up fitting a couple um, young individuals with these 3D printed prosthetic hands. Again, learned a lot about the, the pros and cons of fitting some of those devices, um, and then uh, after Merrimack was when Jeff really helped me get involved with the Enable Community Foundation at that time. So ECF, Enable Community Foundation, was a group of more clinically minded individuals that kind of came out from Enable and, um, you know, really started to focus on, okay, how can we potentially have some great impact um, in the... Uh, low-income countries aspects of, of prosthetics and orthotics because, you know, that's where at the time we thought, oh, if we can make these, you know, for lower cost, um, you know, relatively, there's there's a lot that goes into prosthetics and orthotics being delivered under the typical, you know, insurance programs. So when you when you talk about the low cost of 3D printing, you cannot, absolutely cannot, um, dollar for dollar compare, you know, printing a $5 piece of plastic device to the clinical experience and ongoing care that goes into delivering a prosthesis traditionally. So, um, you know, but we thought in a, in a low income country where, you know, they don't have these other um, insurance pathways to get a device you know, they're, they're looking for any kind of um, lower cost way of manufacturing prostheses and orthoses in a time efficient manner. So 3D printing was pretty interesting for that, for that reason. Um, you know, some of the materials in 2015, 2016 still weren't quite, um, still weren't quite there. Obviously, PLA is not really the material that you really want on a patient end use device, um, just simply from its structural characteristics um, you know, it's definitely not durable enough to go out on a patient for any length of time. So, um, you know, we learned a lot by uh, starting to look into how could we implement this in a, in a low income setting. Um, a few of the other Enable Community Foundation uh, individuals had already started looking into this one clinic in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, and um, Healing Hands for Haiti was very instrumental in partnering with us at ECF to come up with this uh, this program that we wanted to implement where we worked directly with Ultimaker. Uh, thank you to Ultimaker back then for, um, for sponsoring and donating a lot of those 3D printers and materials at the time. That was enormous effort and, um, you know, was very instrumental in helping us with that project. So we brought... Um, seven Ultimaker two plus extendeds, I think it was at the time um, that had almost, I think 14 inches. Don't quote me on that somewhere between 14 to 16 inches of build height capacity. So that was nice that we could do larger prosthetic sockets, get into maybe some lower extremity orthoses, 
didn't know a lot about those at the time, how to print them. Um, maybe some prosthetic lower extremity sockets, just starting to figure that out at that time as well. Um, so we had the printers, we had some material leading up to us actually going to Haiti. Um, Ultimaker brought, um, brought myself and an individual, Joshua Coots from the Victoria Hand Project. Victoria Hand Project, if you haven't heard of them, check them out. They are hugely instrumental in the um, Canadian uh, nonprofit space for upper extremity prosthetics still currently. And from uh, through Ascent Fabrication, we offer their uh, upper extremity device now in the U.S. Um, again, they primarily target the low income setting um, you know, patients who couldn't otherwise afford a device. So Josh and I were actually trained at Ultimaker headquarters in, um, in Geldermelsen, uh, Netherlands. So that was an amazing experience going to their HQ and, um, you know, seeing all that production going on and just that like first setting of, for myself of like being in a space where there are a lot of other people working on 3d printers. I mean, that was amazing to see at that time. You know, this was again, 2016 leading into 2017. So a lot of this desktop 3D printing was still, um, you know, being learned about and understood and how best do we implement this and for what purposes. Um, so that was a really cool experience getting trained uh, by Ultimaker on their printers so that when we went to Haiti, we were prepared fully um, to integrate this 10 day training program that we had for uh, the Haitian prosthetist orthotist that we were that we were seeing there at Healing Hands for Haiti. So uh, Josh and I came up with this this ten day program where uh, we were going to teach them from start to finish, three D scanning, digital clinical modifications. Um, I believe at the time we were using um, what is now Oser Design Studio was standard Cyborg Design Studio in their beta stages really early on, really excited to work with those guys over there, uh, Jeff Huber and, uh, and another individual that were really instrumental in helping us, you know, utilize that software in that setting. Um, so, you know, we were starting to utilize some desktop scanners with, with a, with a swivel pad in order to scan something reliably, um, and end up going into, um, Cura for slicing. So we would go ahead and scan a plaster mold to start. That was the easiest thing. They already had everything traditionally fabricated there. Um, scanned a plaster mold, brought it into um, standard cyborg design studio, designed our socket, what that was going to look like, and then brought it into Cura, did that slicing and ended up doing the printing out of PLA again at the time. So um, we were only doing upper extremity prosthetics, I should mention, for the most part, for the patients that we were actually seeing and providing devices for. Um, VHP, Victoria Hand Project, had their um, their BHP you know, prosthesis that was pretty well hashed out by that point. Um, there's been some small improvements since then, but uh, you know, it's really usable. It had a figure eight harness where it could uh, into, um, articulate all the fingers, and had a, a wrist rotation and ball and socket joints that you could orient it in any any orientation. The devices that uh, Jeff and another individual, Andreas Bastian, were mainly coming up with um, were 
uh, more so for the Enable Community Foundation at that time. And they are more, a couple of them were passive, uh, more cosmetic. And Jeff and Andreas were working on a transhumeral device as well um, for a wonderful patient named Danny, who was, um, you know, just a, a, a joy to be around. All the patients and the clinicians in Haiti there were, were fun to be around. And they were so excited about the technology and, you know, how do we implement this in more ways? You know, they were looking well past the prosthetics and orthotics that they could end up uh, providing, but looking towards other, you know, other components there in the clinic to uh, be able to print out. I think they were printing out um, like just uh, D rings, you know, uh, different rings, different bottoms for crutches, um, some other tools around the, um, around the lab there. And so we went through this 10 day training program with them. A couple of them caught on really well. If you have listened to one of the previous episodes, I had Cindy Laurent, um, on one of my good friends and Haitian prosthetist, orthotist, um, you know, he took to it really, really well. And that, that program continued on, um, for a number of years, effectively, it was still going on until this past year when things started to get really bad in Haiti with the political climate and um, some other things going on. So, you know, we, we had that ongoing uh, relationship with them. I returned after that trip two other times, one time by myself um, and another time with a few other people. And, uh, you know, that's a whole separate story that we can get into at some point personally, if you're interested in learning about how to go to Haiti. Um, you know, that was quite the experience, just uh, getting through customs with seven 3D printers and rucksack black bags. Um, you know, it was definitely an, an eye-opening experience, and I learned quite a bit about being in a foreign country like that. So, um, you know, just a, just an experience overall. Um, but had had a great time over over that period of about two years where I helped lead some of that project from afar as well. We had some other individuals. We had Tyler Bray on as well. Um, and Peter Larson, who now works at Form Labs, actually. Um, they helped us out, went down there when I wasn't able to go down to Port-au-Prince and continue to run this program so that we could help make it more and more sustainable as time went on. Um, you know, and, and to that point, you know, it was fairly sustainable in the way that we built it up. Um, so, you know, it can be done. There are a lot of logistical issues that would have to be overcome, namely shipping logistics, importing and exporting goods, um, you know, and just the cost of doing that, the time of doing that was really probably the biggest factor in some of this, getting them the materials consistently, um, and then once we got the materials down there, the humidity, trying to keep filament dry, um, you know, we really needed a filament dryer at that time or to use the, the ovens that they had there for the traditional fabrication in order to dry out some filament. Um, and then we started to use polypropylene a little bit as time went on. So you didn't have to worry about that. So material choices were, were definitely evolving throughout those couple years, um, after my involvement with, with um, the ECF, I wanted to really get into prosthetics and orthotics. So I did a lot of shadowing um, in the time from when I, I graduated from Merrimack College and before I was going to go into Northwestern University for their prosthetics and orthotics master's degree. 
Um, I also worked as a prosthetic technician for a year and a half um, at a local company here in upstate New York. And, you know, learned a lot about uh, what that traditional fabrication was like, um, you know, how to implement that with, with clinicians and patients and what did, you know, what were all those little nuances about what people were looking for. Um, and then I got, had the opportunity to go to Northwestern, which was an amazing experience. Um, learned a ton, um, you know, getting us prepared for our clinical exams. Um, so shout out to all the Northwestern staff at that time. You know, it had I had an amazing experience overall. And, you know, thank you for everything that you've done for me um, in that support. I know that uh, there are a couple individuals that I'm still chatting with there to start to do more 3D printing, um, you know, actually at the time. So we had not really like a any kind of digital, um, you know, uh, ex uh, digital education into 3D printing or really even 3D scanning. They were just starting out, I think, even though one of the first 3D printers in the prosthetics and orthotics industry um, I believe it was called Squirt Shape. Um, you know, that was actually um, uh, first uh, kind of introduced at Northwestern. There was a 3D printer there that was, um, I forget if it was pellet extrusion or if it was um, filament extrusion, but it was one of the, of the first 3D printers of its time. And, um, you know, it was just sitting in a research closet in the back and nobody was touching it. You know, I wish I had a little bit more time to do something with that while I was there. Um, but yeah, so when it came to our digital education at Northwestern, um, the, the instructor at the time actually said, you know, Joe, you might have even as much or if more experience with this program. It was Design Studio from, from Standard Cyborg still at the time and using a structure sensor scanner. Um, so he's like, go ahead and go up there and, you know, teach it and see where we can go with it. So had a, had a good, good fun time uh, with those kind of two classes, uh, maybe a couple hours a piece. Um, one or two classes. It might not even been two classes. I think it was just one. So, you know, that was definitely a fun time just getting to teach my peers of, uh, you know, what I had experienced already in 3D printing. And so after Northwestern, um, you know, I wanted to really get my my feet wet clinically. You know, you have um, after your, your two years, basically in a master's program, educational uh, setting, and that looks a little bit different for the other uh, schools that are in the in the space there. I think there's only like 12 schools now out there, um, you know, some very low numbers. My class size was about 46 students, I believe. Um, and that was one of the largest classes that there is. So, you know, there there aren't too many schools to go to for this. But after you get through that program, you go into a residency. You get either a 12-month residency in prosthetics, 12 months in orthotics, or in some cases, you might go for 18 months in prosthetics and orthotics. Um, so, you know, that has uh, some implications based off of where in the country you want to be in. So, I know like Florida doesn't accept an 18 month residency. You have to do 12 months in prosthetics, 12 months in orthotics. And of course, those kind of blend together a little bit anyways, because when you're in a clinic, you're going to be seeing both patients uh, regardless in almost every case. Um, so it's just the the fluctuation of patients that come through the door in a clinic. Um, 
you know, so when you're, if any, you know, uh, PO students or people who are interested in prosthetics and orthotics are listening to this, you know, definitely take your time to look at a residency site to make sure it's the kind of experience that you want to have in residency. You're going to get a fairly good experience overall, no matter where you go. You're going to be able to see patients. You're going to be doing some fabrication a little bit. Um, and depending on where you go, you might be doing some 3D printing uh, and CAD design. So, you know, depending on what you're looking for, definitely do your homework and, and figure out where you'd want to go. Um, so I went down to uh, Savannah, Georgia, of all places, never been in Georgia before, uh, never been to Savannah. And with uh, my prosthetics um, director there, Ryan Fan. Uh, Ryan is a former Paralympic athlete himself. Uh, he is, that's kind of why I sought out that residency because he's one of the founders of Amputee Blade Runners. Amputee Blade Runners, uh, again, if you're an amputee listening to this and you're looking to get more active uh, or just, you know, would look, like to look into running prostheses in general, Amputee Blade Runners does a really nice job uh, with their, their offerings in a nonprofit sense. Um, so Ryan taught me a lot in terms of, you know, what to look for, for high activity prostheses, but we also saw a lot of, um, you know, other people who weren't so active. Um, we were actually within a vascular clinic. Um, so that was pretty interesting to be able to directly interact with the vascular surgeons. Um, on several occasions, I was actually uh, invited to go into the OR with um, with these surgeons. And we were talking about where the amputation levels were going to be and what was best for the patient for some componentry, you know, thoughts around it too. So I thought that was a really special and really unique opportunity to be able to work directly with surgeons like that, that, you know, doesn't happen in a lot of cases, but I think should. You know, with the amount of amputations that are happening now with with diabetic patients across the U.S. and elsewhere, um, that's about 80 percent of our patient population. And it's only growing, unfortunately, lower extremity amputations, particularly below the knee. Um, they might start off with a partial foot amputation and just kind of work their way up because they have either peripheral vascular disease, peripheral arterial disease or just other complications from, you know, diabetic foot ulcers that just don't heal. Um, so, you know, while that prevalency is unfortunately growing, I think it's extremely, um, you know, useful for us to be able to work directly with these surgeons who are seeing these patients, you know, go to those patient visits with that surgeon and talk about some of these things before someone has an amputation, um, you know, because that can kind of help prepare that patient for what is inevitably going to happen, unfortunately. And in a lot of cases, patients don't want to hear that, right? They don't want to hear that they're getting their leg uh, amputated. You know, that's a, a hugely traumatic experience for, for people. Um, so the more people that they have in their corner kind of helping to guide them in some decisions, I think is only benefiting everyone, you know, having PTs and OTs on the back end of things to help, you know, create this circle of care of, um, you know, having everyone involved, making sure that you have uh, every step of the way that patient covered from their uh, surgical relationship to their prosthetist, orthotist relationship to, you know, their rehabilitation goals. So, you know, that was an amazing experience working with Ryan Fan um, now with Re Reform Prosthetics. 
Um, Ryan's doing an awesome job, uh, you know, with his patients down there, check out reform prosthetics, uh, if you're in that area. And, um, you know, he made me stay completely not digital during that entire residency. I remember he was using, um, Willowood's Omega and scanning with a structure sensor at the time, I think Mark one or Mark two, something like that. And, um, you know, he was like, you know what, you're going to go completely not digital and you're going to get all those skills down and you're going to master that until I say so, uh, until, you know, we can get you into the digital space. Because if you don't master those traditional things, then you won't know how to translate that to the digital world, which I, I wholly agree with. You know, there are a lot of traditional fabrication techniques and clinical modification techniques that do have to be directly transferred in that in that knowledge of you know how we're supposed to fit a prosthetic or orthotic device clinically. Um, so it's not just you know shelling something out in mesh mixer and, and calling that a prosthesis that doesn't work. Um, you know you're going to have a lot of patient issues that way if that's how you're providing care. Um, but you really need to take into account those clinical applications. What are the patient comorbidities? You know, why are you deciding on a particular suspension mechanism for a prosthesis? So, you know, with, with my background in the technical side of things and then getting into my residency and doing the clinical side of things, um, you know, I was looking to actually come back up to upstate New York. Um, that was about... 2019 into 2020 leading into COVID that was, you know, not an experience anyone else wants to go through again, obviously. Um, but I was fortunate enough to work uh, with the same group that I was a technician for um, throughout COVID in my orthotics residency and then uh, passing my uh, CPM exams for ABC certification in prosthetics, working as a, a certified prosthetist. Um, I should mention too, that when I started as a technician, I guess we're rolling back a little bit now, when I started as a tech, you know, this was still like 2016, 2017, uh, where I had some 3D printing knowledge and CAD experience. So I was able to start the, these 3D scanning, digital clinical modifications and 3D printing for that clinic back then at 2016, 2017. And we used it, you know, for a lot of different things, for covers, for flexible inners, for test sockets. Um, and we were using a raised 3D, I think it was an N2 plus back then. Um, so the, the extended version, um, you know, plenty of build volume. I now have a very similar printer, the raised 3D Pro 3 plus. Um, and, uh, you know, we were doing 3D printing back then for, for prosthetics and orthotics. Um, so when I came back as a clinician full time, uh, you know, I really wanted to get into, okay, how do we make more durable devices? How do we use this every single day in our clinic? Um, and so there was a, a company PVA med that was actually right down the street from us, uh, in half moon, New York that had created this printer, the emergence pro that was a little bit taller and a little bit cleaner, I would say, than the Raise 3D at that time had a lot less issues mechanically with it. Um, and they were marketing it as the test socket machine, right? So they had a, a proprietary one and a half millimeter nozzle, very large build volume, 
and they could print, you know, a below knee or above knee test socket in a matter of six to 16 hours, I would say about, you know, BK to AK, small, large. Um, and that was pretty quick back then. We were now printing in vase mode, which I really didn't know about until I got into printing uh, with PVA. So we were printing a lot in vase mode. Vase mode printing is one continuous travel path on the outside shape of your model. So what, depending on how thick you shell out the model, three millimeters, four millimeters, five millimeters, whatever, it's going to be laying down that one continuous shape um, for the entire print in a circular manner until it gets all the way up to the top. So from that, you're not going to be printing trim lines into a prosthetic socket because you have to finish all the way up to the top of the trim lines and um, it needs to be a, a completely flat surface. So we were printing PETG, very clear from my standpoints. Some clinicians are a little bit more wary about, oh, I can't see completely through the test socket. Well, you know, when a patient has a liner on, you know, you, you can't see their skin anyways. So what's the big difference of seeing through a socket or not? Um, you know, I think there's other ways to determine amounts of pressure within a socket. So for me, the difference in optical clarity, because we were now printing layer by layer, wasn't that big of a jump at all. Um, you could still see blanching on the skin. If you did a skin fit, you could still see pressure of the liner up against the socket, but it's different. I get it. You know, you're, you're doing something different that you're not used to, and you're learning about how to best implement that into what you know, as a clinician and are comfortable with. So, you know, learning anything new is going to take time. And, um, you know, it took some time for us to get used to vase mode 3D printing. Um, you know, again, at the time, we were really only printing with the Create uh, 5400. So previously from PVA Med, there was Create O&P, started by Jeff Aaronstone again. And, um, you know, there was a lot of great groundwork laid there, utilizing uh, rapid plaster software to do those clinical modifications and they had a slicer in the background so you didn't have to worry about any print settings um so we're utilizing those couple machines printing out some test sockets printing flexible inners printing um, donning tubes for shrinkers as well um, so a lot of different applications that we were getting into from 2019 2020 and into 2021 as we started to get into 2020, 2021, um, a lot of people were actually reaching out to us. And, you know, my boss at the time was bringing me in as a consultant for these other clinics that were interested in 3D printing and in the digital workflow. Um, and, you know, I saw kind of a real opportunity there because, you know, a lot of people were starting to ask, like, how do we get involved with this? Would you take the time to teach us? Do we have to come to you? Do you come to us? Um, you know, what printer suggestions, what scanner suggestions would you have? So, you know, I, I saw that as a, a awesome opportunity to apply what I had in my passion for, you know, that part of the field. Um, you know, people were also asking for us to print them devices in a central fabrication manner. So that thus where Ascent Fabrication was born. Um, I separated from that company and uh, started Ascent Fabrication on my own to, um, you know, really try to get towards 
um, you know, this, this level of education that the, that the clinicians are expecting um, and looking to, you know, offer that training and education, um, a resource for support with materials, uh, hardware suggestions, 3D scanner suggestions, um, training in the design side of things as well, um, and then offer central fabrication services for people who just want to be able to, you know, receive a device. So uh, that's where we're heading with Ascent Fabrication, um, you know, really setting the standard for how and when and in what ways we implement 3D printing. Um, you know, what is this age old question of how do we get to a definitive FDM 3D printed prosthetic socket? Um, for all intents and purposes, honestly, we've now we've now done it. It's it's there. Um, there are a couple little nuances about it because we're using polypropylene, which is traditionally used in the field. You know, we have uh, traditional polypropylene sockets that clinicians don't question going out the door for over a year at a time. Um, you know, and and for that reason, the one year mark is kind of what we institute as a definitive socket. Um, you know, we traditionally think of uh, carbon fiber epoxy acrylic laminated sockets as a definitive style socket because our insurance and reimbursement standpoint is built up for that, right? So, of course, we're going to be wanting to use those specific coding systems and the L codes to uh, provide a definitive style uh, device. However, again, this is kind of touching on a little bit of the uh, OMP Edge magazine article that I mentioned last week. Um, you know, these prosthetic sockets haven't been tested cyclically. You know, they've never been put to a standard of this is the one way you need to laminate a carbon fiber socket. Throughout the, the you know, few companies that I was able to shadow at and work at, they all had different ways of, of, of laying up carbon fiber and fiberglass and doing a lamination with all different materials and different resins, you know, so there's, there's really no, no standard in our field for fabrication that way. Um, and it's, it's quite difficult to do though, because it's such a, you know, custom way of doing things and not, um, I wouldn't really say scientific, you know, we don't have actual um, numerical pathways to know how much resin we're putting into a laminated carbon fiber socket. So, you know, with that sense of, you know, what constitutes a definitive style socket with my, my talking with a lot of clinicians around the country, you know, the general consensus is that it lasts for at least up to a year. You know, you really want it to last three years or up to 3 million cycles. You know, that would ultimately be the definitive style um, that we only know clinically occurs with traditional carbon fiber sockets. So, um, you know, hopping off my soapbox there a little bit, but, you know, I think that just has to be out there and said that you can make a prosthetic socket from polypropylene right now uh, that can be 3D printed through FDM manners. We do it all the time here at Ascent Fabrication. We've had individuals on these sockets for more than a year now. And we've tested it uh, for lower extremity orthotics, actually solid ankle and articulated polypropylene FDM for over a million cycles. And so with that clinical 
um, experience, as well as the little bit of cyclic data that we do have, I am fully comfortable with our polypropylene sockets being termed definitive. Now, obviously that throws into the, the aspects of, well, you know, we don't have the L coding system to help reimburse for that. Let's talk about that at another time. Let's uh, reach out to me specifically. Let's chat about why and how we need to code different devices. Ultimately, you know, you're you're going to be losing out on the um, on the L code for uh, an, an epoxy acrylic resin lamination, and you're just not going to get around that, right? We're not using epoxy acrylic, um, so you know, because of that, that's one code for a few hundred dollars that's out the door. Now, if we're using the ultralight materials L code, that's a whole different story. Yes, it does reference carbon fiber that goes into the, the lamination uh, buildup for prosthetic sockets. However, it does say or equal on the end of that code. And uh, when we are looking at the pound for pound, density for density, you know, chemical makeup of carbon fiber as an element itself, as a material versus polypropylene and PA11 nylon, for that matter, going multi-jet fusion or SLS printing, these two materials density-wise are less dense than carbon fiber. So they're, they're less weight, right? With that same volume, say you take the same volume of, of prosthetic socket you're going to have a lighter device. So, you know, with a lot more needed on the cyclic testing side of things, again, the AOPA socket guidance work group is working on some cyclic standards to, um, to put towards these prosthetic sockets, which is an amazing, you know, uh, entity trying to do that. Um, you know, I applaud their efforts. We definitely need that data so we can come up with some of these standards in what constitutes a 3D printed definitive device. Um, although I feel perfectly comfortable right now with these prosthetic sockets going out the door and being used for at least up to a year, you know, some other people might not be, and I get that, but let's talk about some of those nuances, you know, what it works for, what it's not good for, um, and, you know, see what, um, you know, possibilities could come up with. There are other materials out there that have carbon fiber chopped, um, you know, or a powder mixed in with another material. In my opinion, um, sure, you're adding carbon fiber in there. All it's doing is making it stiffer. It's not really adding a ton of structural stability to that print that is, you know, pound for pound different than what this polypropylene is. Um, you know, again, challenge me on that, have some data come forward with, uh, you know, a particular carbon fiber filled polypropylene, copoly mix, whatever. Um, and let's see, let's see the data on how much better it is, even compared to a traditionally laminated socket. That's something that, you know, of course, I would like to do at Ascent Fabrication. Um, you know, I really feel strongly about having that data. So, you know, we're working towards doing that as well. Um, but again, throughout this 3D printing journey and me starting Ascent Fabrication, um, a lot of my focus has been around how do we make this accessible for clinicians? Um, what different applications does it have outside of prosthetics or orthotics too, right? We're at Ascent Fab, we're getting well into other applications 
Um, you know, we've, we've done some things in the uh, marketing aspect of things. We've done some signage. Um, we're, we're about to do a six foot long sign on our black belt 3D printer, which is going to be a really cool project. Look out for that. Um, and then, you know, a, a lot of other applications that 3D printing obviously has in other spaces, right? So it all depends on the printer you're getting, the types of materials, what type of print quality you're looking at. Maybe FDM is, is for you. Maybe it's not. Um, maybe you have to go towards a more industrial application, depending on what you're actually looking to get out of it. Um, but, you know, talk to us at Ascent Fab. Let us know, you know, what you're looking to do. Uh, we have a lot of connections in the 3D printing industry in general for materials. We resell the, the 3D printing filament, namely the ColorFab Shore, a few different TPUs, uh, PP Prints Polypropylene, some PETG as well, and getting into some other exciting materials. Um, we also are a distributor for Black Belt, the only really industrially built conveyor belt printer. Um, having some relationships with Filament Innovations, obviously Mike Gorski and his team are awesome over there with their with their Icarus and Ares printer. Um, getting into the lower end side of things, like I mentioned earlier, the Artillery Sidewinder X2 um, on the desktop side of things. And then getting into some more industrial applications, you know, potentially here in the future. So, um, you know, with all that said, if you're still looking to get it directly into uh, 3D printing and you don't have a 3D printer yet, reach out. You know, we'll uh, we'll definitely steer you in the right direction for, you know, what kind of printer you might need. What would you want to be printing? Um, we'll come in and do training for you. We'll have that full on support afterwards. Um, and, you know, just help you into your 3D printing journey. Otherwise, you know, printing devices for you. So whatever it is, you know, come to us with the idea. Uh, we'll talk to you about how we can make that happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how. Um, so 3D printing here really is getting into the production status, um, you know, level of, of ma additive manufacturing. So, you know, I'd really challenge some of you to think about how you could use it in a production status way. Uh, you know, last week we had uh, Mitch on from Mosaic Manufacturing, their array system, you know, four printers, automated build plates with a robotic arm coming in and out and having lights out time for production for two to four days straight. I mean, come on, that's that's getting into full scale, you know, manufacturing production status for sure. So um, I'm excited for, you know, where 3D printing is headed, um, really wanting to uh, get involved with other 3D printing companies who are interested in coming on the podcast, you know, reach out if you'd like to chat with us here. Um, and I did want to end with our new little segment as well. So we started out with the print of the week. I want to start out, uh, end the podcast rather, with our tech tip of the week. So our tech tip of the week right now is when you're printing TPU, we have found that almost no cooling, very low cooling fans, cooling percentage um, is better for more durable TPU prints. So we found that they're stronger. They have better layer adhesion. We're printing around 225 degrees Celsius with a 0 0.6, one millimeter, 1 1.2 millimeter, and on up to you know 2.5 millimeters um, for nozzle sizes, depending on what printer we're printing on. 
Now, again, the, the different nozzle sizes might constitute some different levels of, of temperature based off of particular materials that you're printing. Um, and materials, I mean, in TPU. Uh, different styles TPU might be a few degrees up or down depending on how much material you're spitting out at one time. So that's our tech tip of the week. If you're printing TPU and you're using cooling fans, try not using cooling fans. Um, you know, if you've got some stringing going on, dry out your filament. That's a big reason of stringing and up your retraction a little bit. Um, and you might have to set up your printer a little bit differently for direct drive. Um, but thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Fabrication Friday. Um, really excited to have uh, you with us on this journey. And, uh, you know, thank you for listening in today. If you have any questions about what I went through today, feel free to reach out. You can um, find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, um, the Spotify here, or the Spotify, the podcast is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS. Um, you know, we're starting to get a little bit into TikTok as well. Don't know how that's going to go, but throwing up some YouTube videos, YouTube shorts and on TikTok, um, you know, so anywhere you can find us, uh, follow us everywhere to see what's new and exciting here at Ascent Fab and, uh, and tune in next week, Fabrication Friday. All right. Thanks guys. Have a good one. Happy printing. <laughs>